Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to this month's episode of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. Uh, my name is Andrew Schramm, and I'm a clinical psychologist and a professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. And I'm excited to have a guest co-host here today, JC. <laughs> Hi. Uh, yeah, my name is JC Kant. I'm a research program coordinator in the Division of Suicide Prevention in the Medical College of Wisconsin. Uh, Sarah was not able to be here today, so I'm just filling in for her as a guest co-host. Yeah, appreciate you being here, JC. Yeah, happy and, um, to be here. We'll do our best to to hold down the fort here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we have a, a guest, Abby, that I'm uh, excited to to introduce you all to. Before we jump in, I want to just remind folks that kind of in terms of a content warning that we're going to be talking about mental health and, and suicide in, in the podcast today. And so feel free to uh, pause or come come back to the podcast another day if uh, you're not in, in a space for that. also want to remind folks of the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline that's available at 988 and the text hotline that you can reach by texting TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741741. So with that being said, I uh, want to welcome our guest, uh, Abby Andrews. Abby is a physician assistant with Medical College of Wisconsin in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine and has some uh, really interesting roles that um, I'm excited for our listeners to become acquainted with. So Abby, thanks for, um, for speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Happy Pride Month. Um, I'm excited to talk with you guys today. Yeah, thank you. And so um, if you would tell us a, a bit about the, the work that you do in your role as a PA. Yeah, so I, um, I have kind of many hats and I certainly like my week to be as disorganized as possible because I think that fits with how I function. So I have several different clinics that I work at. My main role is at the TOSA clinic, which is an outpatient mental health clinic through MCW. In that clinic, I do medication management for general outpatient mental health concerns. Embedded in that clinic is also a treatment refractory depression clinic. So I offer services like esketamine or Spravato or RTMS for treatment refractory depression. Being at the Medical College of Wisconsin, I do also see students and residents struggling with mental health concerns or if they need any sort of um, mental health treatment. And then I am also the APP clinic director of the APP Access Clinic, which is a mental health urgent care that is run by our APP fellows. That's at the TOSA Clinic. I am also then for a day and a half during the week embedded in the HIV clinic, seeing patients who have been diagnosed with HIV in the infectious disease clinic. So my time is dedicated to medication management for those folks. And then half a day a week, I am embedded in the inclusion clinic, which is MC, or Freighter's LGBTQ plus clinic. So seeing patients in that population, mostly medication management, but I do a lot of services there as well, uh, which is, I believe, what we are mostly going to be talking about today since it is Pride Month. Yeah, definitely. So in, in honor of Pride Month, we were you know excited to have you here to, to kind of speak specifically to some of the work that's being done in that space. You know, to, to start out, I'm just curious to hear you about kind of what brought you into the work of, of behavioral health. Yeah, I um, kind of, I, I always just joke that I stumbled into it. I stumbled up into my job. 
I knew going into PA school that I wanted to do something in preventative medicine. I think it is really important for treating providers to promote wellness and health. And instead of just focusing on treating illnesses as it comes up. So behavioral health, I think really stood out to me during my clinical rotations as a very meaningful and fulfilling way of incorporating health into people's day-to-day routines. So I did my rotation at MCW in the Department of Psychiatry, and I expressed interest with my preceptor that I I was really interested in the work. So I um, kind of conceptualized what I wanted to do for my job. And my passion really lies in outpatient medicine. I think just promoting wellness for Mm -hmm. folks who are either struggling or want to incorporate more fulfillment into their day-to-day lives. So I, like I said, I kind of expressed interest when I was going through my rotations and I have not really looked back since. I think it is a very rewarding field. I think we can offer a lot of relief for patients and really promote wellness. And uh, I mean, it's not, I guess, technically a preventative medicine specialty, but it really is for me. I think just being able to incorporate kind of the biopsychosocial model, right? A lot of my role is medication management, but I spend a lot of my time talking about lifestyle changes, diet modifications, exercise, promoting sleep and, you know, rest and incorporating those things that really fill my patient's cups. So the biopsychosocial model is something that I feel really passionate about. And I really found that in mental health. Yes, I love that. Yeah, it sounds like a great fit. Mm-hmm. And then one thing that we kind of like to ask all of the guests that come on this podcast is what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about suicide? Yeah, that's um, a big question. Yeah. <laughs> one thing. Um, I really do think that suicide and specifically the prevention of suicide is a community effort. I think that suicide is unfortunately a lot of times an outcome of isolation and being able to promote social connections and, you know, mental wellness and obviously the treatment of mental illness is important, but just being able to connect with people, I think could be really, really, really helpful. So on kind of the population global scale all the way down to like making those individual connections with people. So while I do believe it is a preventative outcome, we as a society have to incorporate those preventions because it's not just a failure of the individual. Absolutely. So thinking about that mm-hmm. holistically and uh, I, I really yeah. appreciate the, the social kind of aspect of that, right? And, and community-based aspect of that. So Abby, as you, as you mentioned, you know, today we really wanted to hear a bit and share with our listeners a, a bit about the Freighter Inclusion Clinic. Could you tell us about, about that clinic? Yeah, I would love to. And I, I mean, I hope I do it justice. We have a whole bunch of different providers in the clinic. So I think everybody at the clinic has a little bit of a different view, but the clinic yeah. itself is set up to be sort of a one-stop shop clinic for patients in the LGBTQ population. Whether you are seeking gender affirming care or um, if your healthcare revolves around your sexual identity or your sexual orientation, um, all the way to just going to an affirming place. So it is anything from primary care, and we can get into a lot of this later, anything from primary care to endocrine to OB-GYN. 
for patients who are in that group. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. My uh, primary care provider is there. Yes. Yeah. A wonderful human. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All of our, I mean, really all the providers there, but the primary care providers love the work they do. And it's palpable every time I walk into the clinic that they're just really passionate about what they do. And I think the patients can feel that. And it's just a really great place to work. Totally. So what would you say makes this clinic unique or um, like an especially important resource, would you say? Yeah, I think um, what makes it unique is really that both the patients and the providers kind of self-select into this clinic. So as I mentioned, like all of the providers in the clinic, the, the clinic is relatively new. Um, and so we all just kind of opted into it because we have a passion for the community. We have a passion for the patient population and being that resource. And then the patients also self-select into it. So we all kind of know that we're there for the same reason. And I think that sort of unspoken understanding is something that unfortunately this patient population has been lacking, right? I, I think medicine in general is kind of tailored to a very specific demographic and having a place that this demographic knows is going to be affirming is, I mean, invaluable. Absolutely, yeah. I definitely hear what you're saying in terms of like the, maybe the, the history of uh, and current like inadequate or incompetent care, unfortunately, that a lot of uh, folks in this community receive. What, what do you see some of the successes and, and challenges in, in that work that you've experienced? Yeah, I mean, successes, frankly, kind of too many to count. I think um, I really love seeing, so one of the, the services that I offer is a letter of readiness for things like gender affirming surgeries. So patients in the trans population, so um, if they are you know, having breast augmentation or a mastectomy, or if they're having gender reassignment surgery, they need to be evaluated by a mental health professional in order for their insurance to approve the surgeries. And then they're covered by insurance a lot of times. And seeing patients after they have these gender affirming surgeries is so beautiful. I mean, if they really, it's just such an affirming thing for them to be able to get. And I, I really just appreciate kind of being part of that journey. I'm not obviously doing the surgeries myself, but I do know the people who do. And um, just seeing the difference that that can make for folks is so empowering. Mm -hmm. And then of course, like anything from like, the patients just really a lot of times identify the relief that like going to something like a clinic like this um, can offer them, you know, they don't have this fear of being dead named or being misgendered or having their healthcare providers, you know, doing unnecessary testing or examinations based on their own curiosity, which is something that happens to a lot of our patients, unfortunately. So I think just the like verbal appreciation for the clinic from the patients is really rewarding too. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I think some of the challenges is our access, right? I, I mean, as a mental health provider, I'm only there for four hours a week and I am the sole mental health care provider in the clinic. So um, my wait list, unfortunately, tends to be quite long. We have a lot of patients, as I mentioned, it is a self-selecting group, it's self-referral. So I, I think we can all kind of get really busy. And that does unfortunately mean that patients may have to wait to be seen. So that's by far the biggest challenge that I have found. What would you say would be the best way for, you know, any of our listeners or any other folks um, to get involved or connected with the clinic? 
Yeah. So as far as like patients go, it is a self-referral. So they simply would just request a, um, a referral to the clinic and they would be set up with a primary care provider there, similar to any other clinic. As far as like a volunteer position, if folks are interested in getting involved that way, I mean, I think being a peer support for one of the many resources that we have could be a very meaningful way to get involved. Um, and then for the general population, I think just being an ally, like I mentioned, it's Pride Month and it's really mm-hmm. easy, I think, during this month to be supportive in that way. Um, but just being a safe person for anybody in your life to go to, I think can be very meaningful as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm And so I'm a, a research nerd, um, as any listeners know. Uh, <laughs> and uh you know, it's the research on just the presence of allies in the lives of queer people is really powerful. Um, and so there was one study on queer youth that, that found that uh, the presence of, of one adult in their lives, the ability to identify one adult in their life that they could talk with and, and trust decreased the suicide attempt rate like sevenfold yeah. um, compared to youth that that didn't have someone. So I think like, regardless of the age, I, I just can't agree more, uh, Abby, about the importance of allyship and, and having spaces where people feel supported. That is kind of a staggering statistic. I mean, I, I completely believe that statistic. I, I think that's kind of what I have seen clinically is, you know, these people that are coming into my office who literally may have nobody else in their corner. And I think just having a space for them to go that, I mean, kind of historically hasn't been that safe. Now having a slew of adults kind of at their, just being resources for them is so powerful. Um, I mean, I'm really getting kind of like the feel goods right now, just knowing that we can be that for patients. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, and I, I mentioned earlier, I think suicide, unfortunately, a lot of times is a outcome of isolation and to feel less isolated in a pretty powerful way, I think can be really helpful. Yeah, I do too. You kind of talked about different resources that y'all have there at the clinic. Um, could you just speak a little bit more on what those resources are, maybe some of the, the peer support that you mentioned and other resources that you have available? Yes, we, because, I mean, I'm in mental health and I I treat mental illness. A lot of my resources are kind of surrounding that, but I I know Andrew that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the the helpline, the 988, you can either text or call that line. There's the crisis helpline, that 741741 text line. Um, As far as like LGBTQ, particularly youth, the Trevor Project is a national resource for patients who are struggling with mental illness or just sort of crisis in general. The GLBT National Help Center line is another national helpline that they can call. In Milwaukee specifically, which is where I practice, the PRISM Warm Line is a Wisconsin-based peer specialist program that you can call if you um, need any sort of like crisis management. It can be mental health related or otherwise. The Milwaukee LGBT Center is something that I think I have referred every single one of my patients to. They have anything from like groups for um, trans and gender non-conforming folks. They have an older LGBTQ group. They have groups for younger people. 
they have food pantries, they have clothing options, including um, resources for like gender affirming products like binders, they have crisis services. So they have really a ton there. It's also very one-stop shopping there. So that is a free resource available to anybody in the community. There is um, also the Milwaukee County Crisis Resource Guide, which is just a document that kind of highlights all of the resources in the county of Milwaukee. Um, as far as like mental health resources go, I refer a lot of my patients to Pathways Counseling Center if they do need specific therapeutic resources or if they um, are looking for another affirming center. A lot of times for gender affirming surgeries, you need two letters of readiness from two different mental health providers. So I know that they offer those letters as well. And then another national resource is PFLAG. So Parents and Friends of Lesbian and Gays is what it's called. I think that name is kind of evolving just given sort of the nuances of the names, but that's the official name. But that is for anybody who has a loved one and is looking for a really good resource for how to be an ally, particularly if your children or friends come out as either, you know, if they're in the minority for sexual orientation or gender identity. So those are kind of like my gamut of resources. And I mean, I'm constantly building these up because I think having more resources is always better. So those are just kind of my go-tos. Yeah, thank you for, for mentioning those. And we had um, Erica with the prison program on an earlier mm-hmm. episode, but I can't help but plug that program again. Mm-hmm. You can call or text their warm line um, and this is specifically for LGBTQ plus youth in, in Wisconsin. Um, that number is 414-336-7974. And then we'll be sure to put links to some of these other resources. Like you mentioned, um, that document that I think would be really nice for us to have linked. So we'll put those in the in the podcast uh, episode description here. So Abby, one of my favorite questions to ask at the end of meetings with with patients, uh, and I find it, it it helps with the podcast interviews and all sorts of other things, though, is, is whether there's anything that we haven't asked you about or that we haven't talked about that you think, you know, might be important for us to, to touch on or that you want our listeners to know. Yeah, I think um, maybe just highlighting kind of the other resources that are available at the inclusion clinic. I certainly can go through like the services that are offered, including what I offer specifically, and then just what patients are able to receive there, if that would be helpful to hear. So as I mentioned, we have like a, a list of fantastic primary care providers and they are kind of in my mind, sort of the face of the clinic. So you are established with the PCP in the clinic, but then we have embedded in the clinic, a list of other specialties. So we have OBGYN for patients who require those services. We have endocrinology embedded in there. The clinic director, his specialty is infectious disease. So if patients are needing anything like infectious disease workups or PrEP or PEP management, We do have a dermatologist embedded in our clinic for patients who are interested. Um, I know they do like laser hair removal for a gender affirming facial hair removal and other other dermatologic issues. We have a PM&R specialist, a physical medicine and rehab specialist, maybe not related to gender affirming or um, sexual orientation care, but if patients in our clinic happen to need PM&R resources, we also have GI included. We have a pharmacy specialist. So if they, if patients are on um, different formulations of different medications, or if they want sort of pharmacy resources, they have those. 
We recently hired two social workers. One just started a couple of weeks ago and then one is starting next week, which I'm so excited about because I think navigating the healthcare system for patients is can be entirely overwhelming, but not even healthcare, just any sort of social um, resources. Housing can be unstable or anything. Um, And then we do also have the nursing staff who help with everything, including my own management of how I, how I treat my patients. We, we do have some research opportunities for patients. I think, as I sort of mentioned earlier, just being a minoritized population, these folks tend to not be represented in research. So we're kind of building that up. And so we are working with a whole bunch of different providers at MCW and Freighter to getting some research opportunities. And then, as I said, I am the sole mental health care provider in the clinic, but we do have several LGBTQ plus affirming providers in the community who have agreed to accept referrals. So if it's taking a long time to get in with me, I know the names of people who have kind of, again, sort of self-identified themselves as allies. I provide, you know, mental health assessments and diagnosis. I'm usually kind of a medication management provider. I do some general counseling, but I'm not a therapist. So anybody seeking therapy can be referred out. So that's kind of the the clinic in a nutshell, but I, I just think it's important for patients to know kind of what we offer. I also think it's really important for them to realize just because you are a member of the, I'll call it SOGI minority, sexual orientation and gender identity minority, doesn't mean that your healthcare has to surround that, right? This is just a place to go, even if what you are looking for is not related at all to yep. kind of those parts of yourself. So Absolutely. That was very long-winded. <laughs> well, thank you for describing that. There are a lot of resources. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and you've kind of touched on this a bit in most of your answers, but I was wondering if you would be willing to just kind of give a brief overview of, I guess, just what like gender affirming care all entails. I think a lot of people in the general public who may not have you know much knowledge about it think that it's primarily just um, reassignment surgeries and hormone therapy. But from my understanding, there's a lot more that falls under that category. So I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that a little bit. I would love to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of it. So um, I, I, I'm going to keep referring to this patient population as SOGI minorities. So sexual orientation and gender identity, because that's kind of a mouthful. So patients who do not identify as either straight or cis. Right. So, and that's all the acronyms. So for folks that aren't familiar, cisgender means that someone's gender aligns with the sex that was assigned at, at birth. And that, so that contrasts with transgender, for example, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay, I just want to clarify that. Yeah, I think I've gotten so used to talking about this that I, I don't realize I, I do sort of need to step back into the fundamentals. So I appreciate you. Oh, pointing good. That yeah. Out. Yeah. So Being uh, specifically, I believe, JC, your question was about gender identity. So this is a full spectrum of how patients identify. And transitioning from being cisgender to either gender nonconforming or transgender means, Andrew, like you said, you do not identify with the sex that assigned was assigned for you at birth. And so this can be anywhere from you know, sort of socially transitioning. So this could be anywhere from, you know, presenting as either more masculine or feminine that is not aligned with your sex assigned at birth, using different pronouns or um, going by a different name that was not assigned to you at birth to hormone 
transition. So hormonally, medically, people can transition. So either going on estrogen or testosterone in order to align more with your gender identity. And then there's, of course, surgical interventions that can happen. And that can be, you know, gender reassignment surgeries. I refer to it as top surgery or bottom surgery. So top surgery can be anywhere from breast augmentation for trans feminine folks or um, mastectomy for trans masculine folks. Bottom surgery is reassignment surgery. And then there's kind of a whole other slew of options. You know, facial feminization surgery is really common. So that can be I don't know how technical you want me to get, but I mean, it can be right, laser hair removal, or it can be, you know, like a tracheal shave if a patient doesn't like the appearance of their Adam's apple. There's, there's kind of um, facial characteristics that patients identify as more masculine or feminine that they mm-hmm. want to have surgically altered so that they can better, they, they feel like their physical appearance better represents their gender identity. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a whole slew of things and I, I don't want to be too technical with everything, but if you have any like clarifying questions, let me know. Yeah. Thanks for, for going into that. I want to just share, I guess, that in my training, my doctoral program, I had the privilege of working at a clinic that served people living with HIV. And um, as part of that, you know, did, did therapy uh, with individuals and in the, in a group setting and, for patients I worked with that were experiencing suicidal thoughts, time and time again, the stressor or you know, a, a very common stressor was invalidation or rejection in one's environment. And so I just want to kind of draw this all back to highlight that anything that we can do as a community to help someone feel uh, included and affirmed is a form of suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. I, I think about anti-racism as suicide prevention in the Black community, right? So kind of a parallel here, I think, being some of the services that we're talking about, just being critical to people's lives feeling valued and and and, and worth living. So I really, I think, it's interesting kind of just as we're talking, I'm reflecting on how all of these things may not on the surface appear related to suicide prevention necessarily, but want to really emphasize that, that point. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. I, I completely agree. I think these interventions can literally be life-saving for folks. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also specific to this population, specifically gender identity, being able to, quote unquote, pass as the identity that patients identify as is so affirming for them. And so being able to pass as how they internally identify is, like I said, literally can be life-saving. And, and I've seen that clinically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you both from the bottom of my heart for, for being here. And Abby, thanks so much for describing the, the work that y'all are doing at the Inclusion Clinic. So again, for folks that are interested in learning more about that source of care, just Google Milwaukee Inclusion Clinic and it'll pop up. And then we'll also, like I said, link some resources in the episode description here 
to try to uh, encourage folks to access those. So take care, everyone. Again, just know that if uh, you're in need of some support, that there are some resources, including 988. You can call from any number um, or the text line, text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741-741. So take care, everyone. I'm really looking forward to our episode next month and uh, appreciate everyone being here.